we return our attention once again to Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We are in the seventh chapter, and I'm going to begin reading tonight at verse 7 and reading through verse 12. But once again, I have aspirations of moving beyond verse 12 in the time that is allotted for this evening. So at this point, I'd ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. He who has ears to hear the Word of God, let them hear. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, O Lord, as we look to these instructions from the pen of Your Apostle, we hear not His wisdom, but Your truth, in which the purpose of Your law is revealed unto us. And tonight, as we seek to understand the teaching that is set forth in this epistle, we pray that You would make us alive to that which is pleasing to You. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Throughout this section in chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Romans where Paul is dealing with the consequences of our justification and that sanctification that is most necessary to follow immediately upon our justification, he sets forth this rather lengthy discussion of the use of the law. Two weeks ago, we considered some aspects of the purpose of the moral law in our lives, most importantly, how it drives us to the gospel. And in this section, Paul has a series of rhetorical questions where he asks the question, and then he responds with great strength in indicating, as I said before, his abhorrence at the idea of misconceptions that might follow from the things that he is teaching. And so we see that again in verse 7 when he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. 
Again, that emphatic response that indicates not only the negative but the abhorrence of the thought that just because the law may provoke within us and stir up hostile feelings towards God's righteous law, that by the hearing of the law and the understanding of the law, we may be provoked to greater sinning than we would had we not known the law. We can't come to the conclusion that therefore there's something wrong with the law, that therefore the law itself is evil, or the law itself is sin. And Paul is saying we need to keep in front of our eyes here a clear distinction between the righteousness of the law and the sinfulness of our response to that law. It's not the law that is the culprit here. It is our fallen corruption. Is the law sin? By no means. God forbid. Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Therefore, the point that Paul is making again is the revelatory character of the law of God, that the law of God, as we pointed out the last time, is that mirror by which we not only see the glory and radiance of God's perfection, but when we see ourselves against that backdrop, we see ourselves warts and all. The law is not sin, but the law makes known to us our sin. Paul said, I wouldn't even have known that covetousness was a sin until the law said, thou shalt not covet. Now, again, dearly beloved, before we come to the gospel, before we go on our faces before Christ begging for the mercy of God, this will never happen until God the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And the instrument that the Spirit uses again and again in church history to bring us to the cross is the revelation of law. We are at ease in Zion. We have made ourselves inured to the power of the law. The pagan walks around out there virtually oblivious to the radical disobedience that he exhibits every hour of his life. Oh, he may be willing to admit that he's not perfect, that nobody's perfect, but he doesn't feel the weight of that. It's just take it for granted. We're doing what comes naturally. To err is human. To forgive is divine. And so the fact that we covet, the fact that we lust, is no major matter. We're comfortable in our sin. In fact, the image that Paul uses again and again is the image of somebody who's dead, spiritually dead, dead to any awareness of the gravity of sin. I've said this before, I'll say it again, that it is the testimony of the greatest saints of the history of the church that 
the more deeply they came to know the character of God, the more acutely conscious, conscious they became of the severity of their sin. This is one of the sweet characteristics of God's mercy, is that He doesn't reveal all of our sin to us at the same time or in all of its fullness. If God would reveal to me this moment the degree of abiding sin that continues in my life even since I've come to the cross, I couldn't bear it, nor could you. But the bad side to that, the downside of that is that when God withholds His judgment from us and the anguish of conviction, we can begin to think that He doesn't care. The world has lost its fear of God. There is no sense of judgment. This was never more clear to me than in the days following the catastrophe of 9-11. Though for a short period of time, the idea of evil made a comeback in the news where people said, oh, there really is such a thing as evil. When they kept seeing the repeated uh, images of the towers crumbling to the ground, people jumping out of windows, and that sort of thing, we said, yes, there is such a thing as evil and we've just experienced it. But as I mentioned to you, even at the time, the bumper stickers that you'd find ubiquitous in the land was, were, were saying, God bless America. Yet, if commentators from the church would say that in any respect, the events of 9-11 were a reflection of God's judgment upon our nature, our nation, that was received as pure heresy. But I tried to remind people at that time, if you're going to pray to God that He would bless the nation, that He would bless America, you must understand that in your prayer, you're praying to one who has every right and every power to withhold that blessing from a nation. And any God who has the capacity to bless a nation also has the capacity to judge that nation. But even the wake-up call of 9-11 did not cause a corporate consciousness of sin in our land. This is the state of people's minds that Paul is describing here. I wouldn't have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. Again, it's not the commandment that is at fault. But as soon as I heard the commandment, rather than the commandment turning me from my sin, rather than the commandment restraining me from covetousness, Rather, my sin in response to the law of God was stirred to even greater covetousness, even greater sinfulness. Sin took opportunity by the commandment, and it produced in me all manner of evil desire. 
Now, there's a little phrase here that is described in various different translations in different ways. When Paul speaks of the evil desire that is produced within us by sin, the Latin text uses the word from which the English term concupiscence comes. How many of you have never heard that word before, concupiscence? Let me see. All right, Nick, I see that your hand isn't up at this point. And I, oh, now it's too late. You didn't raise it when I said, if you have never heard the word before. So let me ask you to define concupiscence for me. Can you do that? What? You don't know. Does that mean you don't think so? That's what I thought it meant. Now, you asked me before church to call on you this evening and ask you a question, but I don't think I asked you the one you wanted me to ask you, did, did, did I? What do you want me to ask you? Something else? Whose epistle am I teaching here tonight? Who wrote this? Who wrote the letter to the Romans? Ask your brother. Paul, thank you very much. Okay, <clears throat> now, let me see again. How many of you have never heard the term concupiscence before? Let me ask it a different way. How many have? All right. Now, you put your hand up both ways. Campisi, you can't have it. Coming, What's with you? Double-minded man, you know. If you grew up in a Roman Catholic church, you heard it. Bill, if you grew up in a Catholic church, you heard it. Because one of the great disputes between the reformers of the 16th century and the Roman church was that Rome, in trying to explain how sin came into the world originally, said that man was created not evil, but was created with concupiscence. And they defined concupiscence in this manner that concupiscence is of sin, and it inclines to sin, but in and of itself is not sin. And the Reformers answered that by this by saying, look, an evil desire that gives birth to evil action is already sin. Now, our sinful deeds flow out of our sinful desires. And so, we cannot excuse those evil desires as being less than sin. The Latin translation is, as I said, concupiscence, and in the Greek, the word there is epithumia, and there's the word there for passion or desire with a prefix that intensifies it. And what's going on here is this, that the specific sins are what we call actual sin makes bare and makes plain the root of those sins, which is our fallen nature. I think I told you before one of the funniest things I've heard in my life when some of my students came to me because they had seen some vampire movie put out by Hollywood, and they say, R.C., have you seen that, that movie? And I said, no. They said, you're quoted in the movie. I said, what? I said, yeah, you're quoted in this Hollywood movie. They mispronounced your name. They said R.C. Sproul or something like that. And I said, well, what, what, what did I say? And they said, 
And one of the vampires said that we are not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we're sinners. And I'm glad that if Hollywood was going to mispronounce my name and quote me, at least they quoted me accurately on that point, because this is the point that Paul is making here, that actual sins, specific violations of the law of God are rooted and grounded in a passion of sin, a sinful inclination, a sinful disposition. And again, if I beat this drum too much, put on earmuffs. But we have to understand that there's something wrong with the root of the tree. And nothing can change the root of that tree short of the divine and supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit to change us from our bondage to these passions. But sin produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Again, a strange imagery that is being used here by Paul. But again, throughout chapter 6 and into chapter 7, he keeps using that image of death and life. We are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and so on. But he was saying, until the law, sin was dead. Now, what he means by that is that it wasn't active. It was kind of dormant, moribund, asleep, until it was awakened by the presence of the law. Just yesterday, I revisited a film that was made in 1970 that was put together based on archives of the Imperial Navy of Japan and that of the American military headquarters of the events prior to Pearl Harbor. You probably saw the movie Torah, Torah, Torah. And you recall that at the end of the movie, which recitation was quoted again more recently in the film about Pearl Harbor, that Admiral Yamamoto of the Japanese Imperial Navy, after the attack had been successful, he made the comments, I am afraid that all we have accomplished here was to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. That's what Paul's talking about here. We were amateurs in sin. Sin, for the most part, was sleeping until the law comes along and awakens that sleeping giant and fills us with the horrible resolve of wickedness. Apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Again, this difficult metaphors that Paul is using here. I was at peace. I was happy. I was getting along fine without the law. When the law was asleep, my conscience was clear. I was having a good time. I was being one of the guys. I didn't go to sleep at night 
wallowing in guilt. I was happy as long as you kept the law away from me. I was alive. I was having a great time. But when the law came, sin was revived. And I died. When the law came, Paul says, that joyous living without guilt, without remorse, without ruining my behavior, I was feeling great. And then I died when the law revived sin in me. Do you relate to that? Think back to your pre-Christian days. Were you really overburdened by a sense of sin and guilt? Not until the Holy Ghost brought His conviction on you, quickened your conscience, made you alive to the law that you feel for the first time in your life, the weight of your guilt. That's what drove you to Christ. That's what gave you a new life, a life of the Spirit. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Again, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Listen to that. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me. Sin deceived me. Isn't it interesting that Satan in the Scriptures is called the great deceiver, the slanderer, who distorts the truth? What is so attractive about sin? Why would any creature made in the image of God even ever be tempted by sin? Why would you ever be inclined to steal what belongs to somebody else? Why would you ever be inclined to bear false witness against your neighbor? Because in the temptation, there was the offer of happiness. And the pursuit of happiness is given to you as a constitutional guarantee. The devil never comes and says, do this and suffer. Do this and die. Do this and be miserable. But rather, the passions are so excited by sin that you come to believe that unless you act on your passion, you would be denying yourself fundamental happiness. Let me tell you why sin is attractive. Here's what sin brings you. Pleasure. It brings pleasure, but never happiness. That's the monstrous lie of the father of lies. Do this and you'll be happy. Do this and you will be blessed. Never. 
It is impossible for sin to bring happiness to a child of God. Cannot do it. And yet, we don't believe that. I won't be happy unless I do this. I won't really be happy unless I have that. That's how sin deceives us. You will be as God. You won't die. You don't know what happiness is, Adam. You don't know what pleasure is, Eve, until you taste of the fruit. But God said no. Well, God is withholding from you happiness, and you have a right to be happy. The biggest justification morally in the secular culture in our world for all kinds of monstrous evil is we have the right. I have the right to do what I prefer to do. I have the right to destroy my baby. Where'd you get that right? I have a right over my own body, says who? Does God give you the right to do those things? You know better. Every person in the world knows better than that. But they're saying, but if I don't do this, I won't be happy. If you do do it, you destroy all hope of happiness. Because we can't get in our minds the difference between pleasure and happiness. And this is what the apostles are talking about. Sin deceives me. And by that deception, it killed me. Therefore, now here comes the conclusion to this section. Therefore, the law is bad. Therefore, the law is wicked. Therefore, The commandment is sin. You know that's not what this page says. What does God say? Therefore, the law is holy. I had a very close friend. His wife was a professing Christian. She became involved with another man, and she left her husband and five children was living with this other fellow. And another minister and I went to talk to her, understanding the fear and trembling that that Jesus acknowledged when He says, when two or three are gathered together in My name, there I am in the midst of Him. He wasn't talking about Sunday morning services. He wasn't talking about Wednesday night prayer meeting. That promise that Jesus gave of two or three gathered in His name was when two or three were gathered together to fulfill the biblical mandate of calling your brother or sister back from sin, the exercise of church discipline, because if there's ever a time when you need to know the presence of Christ is when you're knocking on the door of somebody and calling them back from sin. I'll never forget that when this other fellow and I went to visit this lady. We weren't angry. We weren't harsh to her. 
we were pleading with her. You're a Christian. You're a married woman. You're a mother of five children. You have to end this relationship and come home. You know what her response was? She says, I don't have to listen to legalism. And I said to her, you know, legalism has many faces where we invent laws where God has left us free. When we major in minors, when we obey the letter and destroy the spirit. But I said to her, you have to understand, it is never legalism to obey the law of God. Because God's law is holy. And what you're doing is unholy. Thanks be to God, she did repent and she did come back. But that doesn't always work out that way. People harden their hearts, make all manner of excuses. Oh, that's legalism. I don't have to listen to the law. The law is a bad thing. No, the law is God's law and God is holy and the law is an expression of His character. The law is an expression of God's holiness. What else does he say? The commandment is a holy commandment, and it is just, and it is good. So the law of God is holy, the law of God is just, the law of God is good. But what happens when a holy law and a just law and a good law is delivered to unholy creatures? They don't think it's so just. Anytime God puts a restraint upon our desires, anytime God says that we ought not to do what we prefer to do, we say, that's not fair. That's not just. As if there were some hint of injustice in the character of God. Beloved, when God says that human life is sacred, you will never hear a more just saying than that. For the law of God is good because He is good. It was designed to bring life, and we turn it into the occasion of death. Well, let me press on, if I may, all the way to verse 13. This brings us to the section of Romans 7, which is one of the most controversial sections in the whole book. If the teaching of predestination were not so strong in chapter 9, this would be the most controversial of all chapters. Because what follows from here is Paul's description of the battle that goes on between the spirit and the flesh between obedience and disobedience. And there's a large portion of Christendom that believes that what Paul describes in the, in the uh, verses to follow, he is th- doing so in retrospect, thinking back to his pre-conversion era and is describing the struggles that he had with sin prior to his conversion. 
Not for one minute do I believe that that's what the apostle is doing here. When the apostle speaks autobiographically here in Romans 7 of the struggle that continues between the flesh and the spirit, he's talking about the struggle that characterizes every Christian's life. And what this part of Romans 7 does is dash into the dust all false doctrines of sanctification that promise you perfection this side of heaven, that promise you some kind of higher Christian life that only a Christian elite group experience in this world. Those who are filled by the Spirit, those who have the second work of grace, those who have received the perfecting influence of God the Holy Spirit. Which viewpoints I will explore as we try to unpack the rest of chapter 7. But let's look at the beginning of this section where Paul asks another rhetorical question in the same vein that he has been doing so far. Has then what is good, that is the commandment, become death to me? Is it the commandment that kills me? Or is it sin that kills me? Is it the commandment become death to me? Certainly not. Again, God forbid. No possible way. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. Sin was producing death in me, not through something that is inherently deadly, but sin was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Again, there it is. This, he can't get loose. He can't get rid of this idea of the weight of our sin. We just don't feel it. I once read an essay by a psychiatrist who talked about a patient who had agoraphobia. That's the phobia where you're afraid to go outside. You're afraid to go to the store. The perfect example of it was Howard Hughes when he lived as a recluse with his fingernails growing three, four inches long. You remember, he lived out his days as a madman, always using antiseptic on the doorknob, not allowing any visitors for fear that they would bring germs that would harm him and kill him. And so the person who has this phobia is afraid to go outside because of all the dangers that lurk out there. They won't go on a picnic because they may be bitten by a poisonous snake. They won't go to the store down the street because they may get hit by a car and be killed. They won't go to visit their children because the airplane may go down. And so they go and they're visited by a psychiatrist and 
The psychiatrist said, well, why are you afraid that you might catch some contagious disease by going to the supermarket or die in a plane crash or a car wreck or buy a poisonous snake? And the person says, hey, doc, this, this isn't just my imagination. Pick up the paper. People get bit by snakes every day. Look at the paper. There are fatal automobile accidents every day. Planes go down. This kind of stuff happens. These are clear and present dangers. And the psychiatrist said in this essay, he said, you know, these people are right. Everything that they're afraid of is a real danger. Well, does that mean that they're perfectly sane? He said, no. This kind of neurotic behavior that moves into the level of psychosis happens with people who have lost their capacity to shield themselves from the real danger. He said, a normal human being is aware that it's dangerous out there, but he sublimates that awareness because normal people are able to function in a world that has blood on tooth and claw. In other words, they deaden their awareness to the perils that really are out there. And that's what happens to us with respect to sin, that the law breaks down the calluses. The law breaks down the normal defense mechanisms that we use to deny our guilt. Because every time we sin and know that we sin, we try to rationalize it, to put it in the best of all possible light. We don't say, I sinned. We say, I made a mistake. I made a bad choice. I do all that. Not that I offended the holiness of God. That's normal. That's natural for fallen humanity. And that's what Paul is saying to us here. That this is the battle we're in. And now he takes it to the next level. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. There it is, folks. There is the biblical basis, the biblical proof text for the doctrine of the carnal Christian. The law is spiritual but I am carnal. I am of the flesh. I've harped on this. You've heard me harp on it. There is this pervasive idea out there in the evangelical Christian world of the difference between the Spirit-filled Christian and the carnal Christian. And the carnal Christian is described as one who has come to Christ, and Christ is in their life, But self remains on the throne of life, and Christ, though the Spirit is in the life and the cross is in the life, it hasn't 
been victorious over self. And these people are carnal Christians. This was invented to deal with the problems of mass evangelism, where an evangelistic meeting goes and 5,000 people come forward and make a decision for Christ, and then the next day, 4,800 of them are living just like they were the day before. And rather than dismiss that as a false profession of faith, we say, oh, they were converted. It just hasn't taken yet. And they're, they're Christians, but they're carnal Christians. If a carnal Christian is defined as a person who is a Christian believer, born again of the Holy Spirit, where the self is on the throne of your life, that is a falsehood. That's an impossibility. If we mean a carnal Christian is somebody who is still in the flesh altogether, that's a contradiction in terms. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian by that definition. I told you the story of a fellow that I knew who made a profession of faith in Christ. He was living with his girlfriend without being married. They were involved in drugs, not only the use of drugs, but selling of drugs. And this fellow was living this kind of a life, and somebody said to him, I thought you made a profession of Christ. He said, oh, I'm a Christian, but don't worry, I'm a carnal Christian. He was happy as a clam. His life wasn't going to change. He didn't need to change. He was a believer. He was safe in the arms of Jesus, but living in abject sin, excusing it as being a carnal Christian. No, no. That kind of carnality is a contradiction in terms. What Paul is talking about here is the fact that when you are born again of the Spirit, when the Spirit regenerates your soul, when the Spirit releases you from the dominion of the flesh and carnality, the carnal disposition of your original nature is not destroyed. You have to fight against it from the day you're converted till the day you enter the gates of heaven. In that sense, in the sense that each one of us has a residual force of the fallen nature, the sarks, the flesh, that each one of us fights with that, in that sense, every Christian is a carnal Christian. Make that clear. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian who is completely carnal. They're completely carnal, they're not a Christian. Nor is there such a thing as a Christian who is carnal-less, who is so Spirit-filled that he doesn't have to still struggle with the remnants of his own carnality. And that that is the case in the Christian life. If Paul doesn't make it clear here with this initial affirmation, the rest of chapter 7, I trust, We'll lay that as bare and as clear as it possibly could be. And so, God willing, we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we still have not felt the full measure of our sin. We thank You that You have concealed it from us to this point. We thank You that You've convicted us enough to bring us to Yourself. 
And we confess that the remnants, the vestigial remnants of the flesh still cling to us. And in that remnant of carnality, we still struggle with your law. But we thank you that you've made us alive by your Spirit, to your Spirit, and quickened us to a new passion for spiritual things. And so again we ask that you would move us from faith to faith, from grace to grace, and from life to life.